the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer, director, producer, and comedian Judd Apatow. He's responsible for creating some of the biggest American comedies of the 2000s including The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, and Trainwreck. In recent years, he's shepherded a handful of young filmmakers as an executive producer, bringing projects like Girls with Lena Dunham and The Big Sick with Kamail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon to life. This year alone, he's served as a producer on Bros with Billy Eichner, a co-director on the HBO documentary George Carlin's American Dream, and the author of Sicker in the Head a collection of interviews with some of the funniest people working today. Now, there are plenty of reasons why I wanted to sit with Judd, but chief among them is the 20th anniversary of The Larry Sanders Show, starring the late Gary Shandling. Shandling was a mentor to Apatow, the person who really kick-started his remarkable career, which eventually included a documentary he made on Gary called The Zen Diaries. As you'll hear, Shanling meant the world to Judd. Hell, he meant the world to me, and I never even met the guy. So we do talk a lot about the Larry Sanders show and its legacy. But we also discuss Apatow's journey from Long Island to Los Angeles, his enduring love of stand-up comedy, and most importantly, his late mother, Tammy Shad. Wherever you are right now, to everyone listening, 
I wish you safe travels around the holidays. If you don't do Thanksgiving, I hope you can take the time to unwind just the same. Maybe even throw on a Judd Apatow comedy. Whatever works. However you spend the next week, I really appreciate you being here for this very special episode with the one and only Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow, pleasure to meet you. Great to meet you. I feel like I know you from listening. And what are the impressions? You know what I noticed from your first episodes to now? Uh You have refined how you speak (laughs) on the show. It evolved from like a young person who mumbles a little bit and isn't aware that there's a performance in how you speak to a very refined, unique way of talking. And I notice that sometimes if I listen back to me doing stand-up, I'll think, I'm talking so fast. They can't even hear what I'm saying. (laughs) They can't even hear the joke. And I'll hear that the joke didn't work. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, because no one heard that. Because I'm like, and it reminds me to slow down. Well, we're going to try to slow down in this this back and forth. I don't usually do these outside of the studio. It feels like a road game for me. That's right. Why don't we set the stage? We're in your office. This seems to be the writer's room, is that? This is a writer's room, conference room. This is a new building that our business is in. And now we have a very severance-like office. It's uh, big and empty with not many people in it, and they all look kind of lonely and lost. As someone who's made films about (laughs) friendships and camaraderie. It's ice cold in here. Just emotionally, though. Just emotionally. It does remind me of what I imagine you were doing back in high school where you'd interview comedians for your high school radio station. You were 15 years old when you started doing this. The year is 1982. You take the train in from Long Island, head down to New York City. Do you remember the first interview where you left it and thought, I think that went pretty well? I think I thought that almost every single time because I couldn't believe anyone would talk to me. So for me, it was more like, I'm home I'm obsessed with comedy and show business and variety. And I have this thought, I want to meet these people, probably because I realize I want to enter their world. And is it possible that they're real? Could I exist in their world in some way? So the idea of talking to them was about testing out if it's possible that I could work in, in show business. So by meeting people, I thought, oh, they're just normal people writing jokes, making movies. I'm kind of like them. I was a cocky kid, but I was very scared during a lot of the interviews and didn't do a great job. And when I listen back, I'm very embarrassed at what I was saying most of the time. (laughs) What would you do? I don't think I really understand what they did to have deep questions. It was a lot of, so how'd you get started? Is that how you sounded? Yeah. I had a very high New York accent. So Steve Allen, what's it like hosting the Tonight Show? And I loved it. I had the greatest time. And I couldn't believe that it was working. Because I would call people's publicists, and this was before the internet. No one wanted to talk to Jerry Seinfeld for an hour. I think he still wishes it was that way. Well, that's the funny part is I think the publicists wanted to look like they were doing a good job. But back then, no one really wanted to talk to comedians. There was no long formats. For me, the idea of 
hearing Jay Leno talk for an hour was my dream, but there was no place to do that. And so I thought, well, I'll just do that myself because I have a lot of questions. And all those questions were things I wanted to know so I could figure out my life. Mm. And they were very nice. Jerry Seinfeld couldn't have been nicer to me. And I think that is also something that changed me and inspired me because it made me realize, oh, you can be a good person and affect people's lives. But just their manners, a lot of these people's manners made me go, oh, I guess I'm supposed to act like that as I turn into an adult. For context, you're this teenage kid that comes from Syosset, the kind of kid who would write a 32-page book report on the Marx Brothers that was unassigned. Yes. <laughs> For fun. The kind of kid who religiously sat in front of the TV from 3.30 in the afternoon till 1.30 in the morning watching The Merv Griffin Show, Dinah Shore, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Letterman, and then, of course, The Tonight Show. When it came to this project in high school, did conducting these interviews just feel like a natural evolution of that enthusiasm? Yes, because for years I was writing letters to people trying to get their autographs. That started at the end of elementary school. You were like the characters in King of Comedy. When I saw King of Comedy, I thought, I want to be in that group. I, I wanted to be Rupert Pumpkin. I didn't think he was a bad character. I thought, oh, that's the dream. That's terrifying. <laughs> it was my favorite movie instantly. Why should he leave Jerry Lewis alone? I don't get it. Sandra Bernhardt is making good choices right now. He's saying please when he's asking for the autograph, banging <laughs> on the limousine window. <laughs> I wanted to be banging on that window with the light bulbs popping. You're the fourth person to ever say that. <laughs> And so I think that was the first attempt to make that connection. You know, my grandmother was very close with this comedian, Toady Fields. And so in our house and with our family, people talked about her as if she was this incredible, brilliant legend. And I think the glamour around that had an effect on me. My grandfather, Bobby Shad, was a jazz producer, and I knew he had produced Janis Joplin and Charlie Parker and people like that. And he was a hustler. He was a kid who raised his own money from his job to hire jazz musicians to record for him. And then he would print up the records and sell them to record stores himself. I mean, he that's how he started. And I think that planted a seed like, oh, you got to hustle. And so the idea of hunting comedians down to talk to them was the hustle. You said in the past that one of the big reasons you started doing these interviews was because my parents had just gotten divorced and it was a time of a lot of drama in my family. And I had to find something to distract myself. It was a way to survive in this world because I had lost a sense of safety. At your core as a teenager in that time, you mentioned the sense of safety. What did you feel like you lost? Well, we were very upper middle class. Then suddenly my parents broke up in seventh grade, but then they got back together and then two years later, they broke up again. So I, I was telling someone that moment when your parents sit you down to tell you they're getting divorced happened to us twice. <laughs> so that's the, you know, the safety. And I, I really enjoyed my friends, my house, my world. So the idea that, oh, everyone is going somewhere else. And my mom is moving out east to the Hamptons and I'm leaving my dad and my sister's kind of going back and forth and my brother's moving to California. Just everyone moved in a different direction. Like life was just not the same. And then we were exposed in a very 1980s way to every detail of the divorce, where now people hide it 
and they go to therapists they together. <laughs> I guess they tr some people try to consciously un uncouple. And, you know, I have friends, they, they go to therapists to figure out how to do it calmly and lovingly. But that wasn't how they did it in the 80s. My parents are listening. <laughs> They're going through it right now? They split up before I was one. Whatever this conscious uncoupling thing. You've never seen it. I've heard of it. I've also heard of Bigfoot. <laughs> Did not happen. Exactly. So that's the safety thing is the erratic nature of it and also being exposed to adult problems when you are too young to understand what they are. And seeing your parents in conflict when you don't really understand all the levels and they expose you to it, that was the part that was most difficult. It wasn't really them separating. It was the fact that they didn't like each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, you think, but I am them. So you're both sides of two people that are in conflict and you feel like both of them. And so, you know, if your mom's mad at your dad, you think, I am my dad. So if you don't like him, I'm half him and vice versa. All of it was very strange. What were those problems that you felt like you couldn't handle back then? I think it was the idea that it was a betrayal to be happy. That's how I look at it. What do you mean? That my mom was so upset by the fact that this divorce was happening and I lived with my dad. For me to be happy in this situation without her was a betrayal. She wanted you to stand up for her. Yes. And you know, that's a difficult thing when you're a kid because you don't even know what's going on. Right. And my dad's thing was he didn't talk about it. And he thought that's the kind thing he was doing by not talking about it at all. So I was getting too much information from one side and zero from the other side. Do you think it was the kind thing? I think that ultimately it was not helpful. But back then, you know, you know, if it was today, they should have just sent me to a psychiatrist and <laughs> I should have gotten some help. My dad once did this thing that's so funny in retrospect, but it says a lot about the times. And this is, you know, 40 years ago when people didn't really know how to handle these things emotionally. I was in the house and I found this book and it was called Growing Up Divorced. And it was basically about the power struggles within a family and how it affects children during a divorce. And I picked it up and I, I read a bunch of it and it was helpful because it pointed out the dynamics of what was happening. And a few years ago, I said to my dad, you know, you, you never really talked to me about any of it. And he said, yeah, but I left you that book. I left out that book. <laughs> And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I, re I remember I left out that book, Growing Up Divorced. I was like, you left it out? He's like, yeah, put it on the coffee table. And I said, but how did you know I looked at it? Well, you took it. Yeah, but you didn't know I read it. <laughs> so, so you were like relying on this random book that I would read on my own and never discuss with anyone for my mental health during this. But I have a lot of compassion, you know, for him because as someone who was young and got married young, he didn't know how to get divorced. My mom didn't know how to get divorced. A lot of the relationships were very complicated with the family and the extended family. But that's what I was left with, which is to read this book alone. But that's how people were. They weren't really sure how what you would tell a child about your feelings. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think I, I talked to my mom about the divorce till she was very ill near the end of her life. I, I don't think I ever said to her, what happened? Really? Yes. I just, I never talked to her about it. I mean, I never just looked her in the eye and said, what happened at that time? You felt like you couldn't ask that? Well, there was so much pain around it and so much anger that you would just avoid the subject. You would hope that it would just heal and you could move on because it was always bubbling back up even decades later. So I just thought, 
can we talk about anything but this? <laughs> but then later you realize exactly what you're saying. I should have talked about it earlier, but I also was too immature to know that's what you're supposed to do. Well, in their defense, we should paint a full picture. When they split up, your mom became a hostess at the East End Comedy Club in Southampton, which allowed you to be in that space and, and take in all of those performances. And then when you decided to do stand-up, performing at open mics, your father would drive you to these clubs like Chuckles and Governor's Comedy Club. And so they did deeply support you and, and show up for you. And I'm curious, what was it like to have parents that were supportive in nurturing your dream while simultaneously upending your life in many ways? Well, that's the confusing part of it because... I had a very good relationship with both personally, and it only got difficult as a result of how they were having a conflict with each other. And when you're young, something that's probably a pretty universal conflict, nothing's happening that wasn't happening in probably half of the houses in America at the time, feels like the most important thing in the world. Because it is. Yeah, because it's your whole life. Who am I having dinner with? Who's helping me with my homework? Who do I lean on? And so seeing them in distress and also seeing them not be, be able to solve a problem. Like, how do we get along? And at the same time, they never doubted for a second I could succeed. So even as a little kid, when I was like, I want to be a comedian, they were like, great. You definitely can do that. You'll be very, very successful. And they meant it. And that gave me a foundation to have a lot of courage to take risks because everything about comedy is a risk. You never know if any joke's going to work. You never know if you're going to bomb. You don't know if your movie's going to be good or bad. So to have that foundation was the ultimate gift. And yeah, my dad would drive me and he'd drive a half hour to drop me off at a club. And then he'd show up three and a half hours later to pick me up at the end of an open mic night. And he did that for a long time. And the joy they took from me chasing my dream. They loved every second of it. And that was a, a big thing for me because I don't have that feeling that things are impossible. I'm certainly insecure like anybody else, but I have enough of a foundation that I didn't give up or I didn't get thrown when I've had things not work. It's the only object constancy I have. From that foundation, you graduate high school at 17. You move out from New York to Los Angeles, where I think you're attending the USC film school. That was in 1985. By 1987, you run out of money to keep going. And I want to sit with this moment that you meet Adam Sandler at the improv. And the two of you decide to rent an apartment in North Hollywood. There's a lot to unpack, but most importantly, what was the apartment like? <laughs> Were you the clean roommate? Were you the passive aggressive roommate? Did Sandler leave a bunch of dishes around and then pretend he didn't leave them? You just want to know filth level. Yeah, filth level, general atmosphere. Well, the apartment in North Hollywood was in a two-story building surrounding a pool. So maybe there were 16 units. Above us were some exotic dancers. And it was a pleasant, semi-clean, not that old, but built quickly type of apartment complex. And we were thrilled to be there. We were in heaven. He paid $4.75 a month. I paid $4.25 because the bathroom was in his bedroom and I had to use the, the guest bathroom. 
and Adam was not clean, but not, it wasn't out of control, but he had a mattress that he threw on the floor that he slept on. So there was probably a box spring with no sheet, a mattress with a sheet that may have never been cleaned the entire time we lived there. Because we didn't know that you cleaned the pillowcases and, and the sheets. What do you think happened to them? Uh, slow disintegration, <laughs> probably. And then nothing on the walls. Adam didn't hang a thing. He didn't even like take a piece of tape and put up a picture <laughs> of a loved one. And a fair amount of things on the floor. There was an answering machine, the old-fashioned style. I have a picture of it where you could really get the, the feel of it. And you see it in the beginning of Funny People. You can see the room because I show some phony phone calls that I used to videotape. Mm -hmm. Mainly because he was so funny, I thought, this is too weird to disappear. Like, this is great. And I think we had generally had a pretty good time. You know, you, it was an interesting moment in life because we could pay our bills. We didn't really have much money, but we had enough to pay our bills. We weren't scared. And we would sleep till 11 o'clock or 12 and then go to the movies. And then as it got to the nighttime, we would go to the improv and do some sets and then eat fettuccine Alfredo at two in the morning and then go do it again the next day. And that was our whole life. That sounds beautiful. It was like a pure moment. As a 20-year-old, both of you have this shared stand-up dream. But you once said being around Adam and Jim Carrey, who you were occasionally writing for, was alternately hilarious and depressing. Why was that? Well, I'm a gigantic fan. So I met Adam when I was 19 or 20. I saw him at the comic strip in New York and then met him when he moved out to L.A. And... As a fan, I just thought, oh, that's the guy. That's the guy. The way you would watch TV and go, oh, Eddie Murphy's going to be a star when you saw him in the first episode of Saturday Night Live. And I wasn't alone in this. A lot of people thought that about Adam upon first watching him. Oh, this is a, a level of creativity and charisma that's nuts. And he's going to do a lot of great things. And as also a fan of comedy, I looked in the mirror and thought, I don't have most of that. You do have a slow realization of where you're strong and where your limitations are. And you're around 50 comedians pretty consistently at the improv. And you could tell, oh, that one could become the next Roseanne. And that one's funny, but probably is going to not have that career. And sadly, I had that awareness about myself. <laughs> and so I was both thrilled and having a great time, but also feeling like, yeah, I don't think my sets are as good as him. You said once, it's like being in a band. And your friends are the Beatles. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, if you look at Jim Carrey, you know, there's an argument to be made that Jim Carrey is the greatest comedy star of all time. So if that's the guy you're hanging out with or you're opening up on the road for him, it is like opening up for the Rolling Stones and going, I don't think I'm as good as the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and you shouldn't be that depressed because there's only one Rolling Stones, just like there's only one Jim Carrey. But on some level, you're like, God, I wish I was the Rolling Stones. I understand. When I moved to Los Angeles, my roommates were Dick Cavett and Terry Gross. And <laughs> Terry's highlighters were all over the place. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, Jim and Adam really loved what I was doing. They liked my stand-up. They liked kicking jokes around with me and writing stuff together. Adam was always a giant supporter of everything I was doing comedically. So that was a big deal to me. But at the same time, it is hard to realize, oh, I'm not going to turn into Bill Murray. I have to do something else. And I didn't prepare to be a director or a writer. I went to film school for 18 months. Hmm. But slowly I was like, everyone seems to like it better when I write them jokes than when I tell them <laughs> jokes. 
I remember I wrote a sketch for Adam when he got Saturday Night Live, and I said, can you just hand this in as if you wrote it so I could see if I'm good enough to write for Saturday Night Live? And they did the sketch. Was it around that time that you realized it was easier for you to comedically get inside someone else's head than it was getting inside your own head? Well, certainly it was a skill I had from being a fan. I could imagine what people would say. And I didn't know myself that well. I wasn't sure what I would say. I wasn't angry. I wasn't cynical. I wasn't that imaginative. I was just a nice guy from Long Island. <laughs> I didn't have rage. I had some good jokes and it was fine. <laughs> it's amazing I got as far as I did at that time. But when sitting with Jim Carrey, I could take that ride with him and come up with really wild stuff and we would laugh and I wrote a bunch of sketches with him for In Living Color that they did, like the Vera de Milo sketches. And, and that was very, very exciting. And, and I felt that way with a lot of people, like, oh, I can sit with Roseanne and write in her voice. And I, and I did that for a long time. And it, and it took a long time for me to go, but what would my voice be? I mean, it took another 10 years for me to even consider what my point of view was. It almost sounds like it was helpful that you were kind of this amorphous thing so that you could basically be a vessel or just a, a catalyst for all these other voices because you didn't quite know what yours sounded like. Well, I think my lack of belief in myself made me a good person for other people to collaborate with because so many people were great, but they didn't want to write for other people. Adam wasn't going to write jokes for other people. He, he knew what he needed to do to break through for himself. And all that energy went into figuring himself out and writing his jokes and beginning to write movies. But I needed money. And I need to pay my rent. And I also, I never for a second thought at like 22, like I'm going to write a movie starring Judd Apatow. It never even occurred to me that that was a thing that I could do. Looking back now, like why didn't I? I could have said, I'm going to write my swingers about myself. Never thought of it. Literally never entered my brain. What would that have looked like? What would that movie have been? Your swingers 20-something Judd Apatow movie. I mean, it ultimately became Knocked Up. But I needed another 20 years to figure that out. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with Judd Apatow. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. 
I mean, you could only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. In those early years, you needed money to pay rent to keep living. You write and sell jokes to other comedians. I think you started selling jokes to a ventriloquist. Yes, I wrote a couple of jokes for Jeff Dunham with my friend Joel Madison. I wrote for George Wallace and Taylor Negron a couple of times and did some work for Dennis Miller for this HBO special, which was a pregame show for the Paul Simon Live in Central Park concert. What were those jokes? I remember one joke, which is one of my favorite jokes I, I ever wrote, which is... Uh, Paul Simon is about to hit the stage with the 22 musicians from around the world it took to replace art. <laughs> and that was a, a great experience. And so Tom Arnold had me write jokes for him, and then I wrote some HBO specials for him. 
So, yeah, then I got to write for Roseanne after writing for Tom. And I really enjoyed that work, mainly because it was an extension of doing the interviews. And now certain people are saying, you can jump in the process with me. And so that was also the dream. I can sit at a table with Roseanne in her house and kick around jokes about stretch marks. This is the dream come true. I want to go to the year you're hired on The Larry Sanders Show. I think it's 1993. Mm -hmm. Is that right? The program just celebrated, I believe, 20 years this year. Gary always said that The Larry Sanders Show was about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. Did you find that to be true in the moment that while you're working in show business as a 20-something, did you find that there were a lot of people seeking connection, but the industry kept getting in everyone's way? Well, there's certainly some of that when you're young in comedy because people are very competitive. So as you start doing well, some of your friends are suddenly mad at you or they're weird with you. And that was a surprise. But I do think that when you're young, you have a delusional confidence about what you're capable of and where this can go. And everyone has it. So if you're in a group of a hundred comedians, if suddenly you have a moment where you rise and have some opportunities, it's natural that people are also fiercely trying to get ahead that some people would be like, fuck that guy. But sometimes it's your friends. You know, now that I'm older, I think we all, we all get it. That's what you do when you're in the middle of that madness of ambition. And then you calm down later in life. But it did require madness when you're a young person to think any of it was possible. Mm. The odds are so long that the only way you would ever attempt it is because your brain is built to believe when there is no reason why your brain should believe. What about the madness it required to make The Larry Sanders Show? You had a front row seat to seeing Gary make this week after week. Yeah. How did you process that at the time? Well, Gary was always a genius and very kind to me, but also very complicated as a person. What does that mean? He had very high standards, and if people couldn't meet them, he took it as an attack. But really, no one is good enough to keep up. Only a few people could really keep up with Gary. Did you? I don't think I did totally, but I was always in the ballpark, and he enjoyed the conversation with me. And I generally was pretty close just because I think I was like him. In what ways? In the ways we were neurotic, and like our mother issues, and our insecurities. I, I just was in the world of him, and he knew that. And so even though I wasn't necessarily providing the greatest stuff, he enjoyed talking about it with me. And I was having fun at the show. A lot of people were stressed out. A lot of people like started hating Gary because of the way he would be rude sometimes, usually because he was exhausted. And the way he was judgmental, because that was his job to say, this script's good or this script's bad. And if you wrote a bad script and someone told you, and maybe told you not in the nicest way, you get mad. But for me, I was so happy to be there that I was just having a blast, <laughs> you know, and I, I wasn't in a position of power. I was mainly just pitching jokes and writing an occasional script for the first few seasons. And then I, I helped run the show in the last season. So I just got a kick out of it. And I really felt for Gary because I could see that there was too much work for one person to do. And of course he's cracking because he's the writer. He's kind of semi-directing a lot of it. He's editing it. He's producing it. He's booking it. He's got to think about next week's episode. And it was too much. And then if you handed him next week's script and it was bad, he would just think, so now I got to fix this. Great. Felt insurmountable. And back then people didn't know how to set up those productions to protect 
what is now, you know, the Larry David or the Tina Fey. Back then, people didn't understand how much time you needed to do that work if you had to star and write. So it was set up in a really stupid way. And then he was constantly saying, no one's protecting me. No one's taking care of me. And then people would be mad at him because he was basically on fumes a fair amount of the time. When you got to the show, Gary said to you, oh, you're going to learn so much here. What did you feel like you needed to learn from the Larry Sanders show? Well, when he said that, I, I'm sure I didn't understand what he was talking about at all. Because at that time, all I had written was sketches at the Ben Stiller show. I hadn't written any screenplays. So I knew nothing. I knew nothing about storytelling. I was a complete uh, blank canvas. I didn't understand human behavior. And that's what these stories should be about. All the ways in which we stumble through life. And he thought that people try to present themselves as different than they are. And it was a metaphor of the curtain. Here's the way people behave in front of the curtain and behind the curtain and all the ways we try to appear like we have our shit together, like we know what we're doing, when inside we're all kind of falling apart and a disaster. And what was fascinating about it was you know, Gary was looking deep inside of himself and he hated the idea of ego and Hollywood ego, but clearly he was a person that struggled with that. He wanted to be successful. He wanted to be respected. And he found it funny the way people seek approval more than they want to give love or be present. So he was fascinated with Buddhism and that was his goal as a person. So when you look at the office of The Larry Sanders Show, it's as far away from Buddhist beliefs as you can get. It's if I get a raise, I'll be happy. If the show goes well, I'll be happy. He you know, would do the show and then go on a date and show the show he just did to the date. That's what he was exploring, that kind of neediness, because he wanted to get rid of his neediness mm -hmm. and his ego. And it was you know, a lifelong pursuit, and it's not like... It happened, but he was trying. Yeah. It's bottomless because Gary struggled. You know, he had a lot of childhood trauma when his brother passed away and his family just basically stopped talking about it. He didn't really have a way to heal from it and grieve in a, in a healthy way. And I think that's what his work was about, the ways that we aren't honest with each other. One thing Gary always said was people never tell each other the truth. And if they do, it's shocking. Like to look at someone and really be truthful. I remember there was a scene in the first episode I ever directed where he's with Ileana Douglas. And the episode is about their relationship problems because she's going to be on the show and he doesn't know if she's a good guest. And there's a moment where they're like fighting and then it gets very upsetting. And then Gary just goes, I'm a talk show host. I'm all fucked up. And it was one of the most revealing moments in, in the whole series, because that's really the essence of it all. I'm a talk show host. I'm all fucked up. But the show is ending in a couple of weeks. So if you can stick around, maybe we can make it work. Yeah. You saw the episode recently. I watched it last night. Oh, really? So that's the first thing I ever directed was uh, that episode. I didn't watch it by random. <laughs> <laughs> you happened to watch 200 episodes in the last <laughs> week or two. I did rewatch that episode last night. And then, of course... I watched the finale of the show, mm -hmm. which comes right after. And I wanted to sit with this moment because the series finale was in May of 1998. You had been married for a year to Leslie. You just had your first daughter the year prior. 
And with this show, like you said, you directed your first episode of television for a comedian you grew up admiring. And I was wondering about this because when Kamal Nanjiani and Emily Gordon premiered The Big Sick at Sundance, they were at a party and Leslie came up to them and said, enjoy this. I want you to really enjoy this moment because it's never going to happen again. And I was thinking, were you able to enjoy that moment? Were you able to listen to her advice back in 1998 when it seemed like the professional and personal were both flourishing at the same time? Well, I, I was you know thrilled with Maud's arrival and there was a lot going on there because for anyone having their first child, you just have no idea what you're doing and you're just getting hit with a sledgehammer every day all the time. But it was a, a great moment and we had an enormous amount of fun with it. At the same time, I had to work and I felt a pressure to have a job because oh, suddenly I'm not alone. And the last season of The Larry Sanders Show was really fun but stressful because Gary called me and he said, I need your help this year. Will you help me run the show with the Adam Resnick? And I said, Gary, I really appreciate our friendship. It's very important to me. And I don't want to do it if at the end of it, you're going to hate me. Because he ended a lot of relationships with people he respected when they couldn't pull off running the show. And it happened a fair amount of times. And so I just looked him in the eye and said, you're not allowed to hate me. And I'll just try to help you as much as I can. And he said, okay. And we had a great year. Not that it wasn't hard and there was a lot going on. There were things that were intense, but I enjoyed being with him and I enjoyed pulling him into writing. So when something was bad, I just said, Gary, it's fun. Let's figure it out. This is, this is fun. This is what we do. And I think at the end of it, Gary thought I did pull it off. So as insecure as Gary always was and as tough on the material as he always was, when that season ended, Gary thought it's exactly what I wanted it to be. And for me, having stepped into that role with Adam Resnick, I just thought, wow, that's a miracle. And so much of it is Peter Tolan. But to get Gary to be happy with the season, and especially the finale, I mean, that was the best feeling in the world. So were you happy? Yeah, I think I was happy. I mean, the one thing I did for the finale, uh, which Gary wrote with Peter, Gary said, can you ask Jim Carrey to do it? And we had been asking Jim Carrey for six years to do the show, and he just never would book it. He never said no, but he just didn't allow it to get booked. And I called Jim and I said, this is your last shot. It's the last episode. And he said, well, I'll do it if I can be the best person who's ever done it. And I was like, okay, okay, Jim, you'll be the best person who's ever done it. And <laughs> Jim and I, one day were at the improv, we were performing in the improv or he was performing. And we met these people at the club and we go back to their apartment and it's not like a date thing or it's, I, I don't know why it was just like a weird thing. Like, yeah, we'll go hang out with you. So this woman suddenly takes out a vinyl album of dream girls and puts on Jennifer holiday singing. And I'm telling you the big number and she lip syncs it. It was like a David Lynch scene and it was just crazy and kind of hilarious, but like crazy, like, why are we here? So. I always remembered that strange moment. And so I said to Jim, maybe you should sing, maybe you should sing that song. And then Jim just crushed it and maybe was the best person who ever did the show. It's possible. It's such an insane bit and the gumption required. You watch it and it's like, this is Jim 
firing on all cylinders. I remember he did it once, and then afterwards, Gary was like, I think we got it. And Jim's like, no, I'd like to do it again. I can do it better. And Gary goes, you could do that again? Let's take a look at that. If you're as upset about Larry leaving this show as I am, say no way! No way! No, 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 no way! No, 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 no way! We're living without you. We're not living without you. There's just no way, no way. And on the mountains, yeah, scream and shout. You can say what you want. We're not walking out. When we put that moment in the documentary about Gary, I got the dailies and I looked at all the takes and I saw that my mom was in the audience, which totally surprised me. I forgot she was there. So I'm looking through the dailies. My mom is in the crowd. And then I look in the audience and Mark Flanagan, who owns Largo, and John Bryan are in the crowd. And I wasn't friends with them then. And so I recut the song and used a different take. And so in the documentary, it's not the way it was cut for the show. It's like I just did this recut and made a point of like showing my mom and showing Flanagan. So, I mean, it was a, a pretty intense thing to stumble upon. Sort of artifact that you didn't know existed. It just reminded me how much, how much my mom supported me. Yeah. That she was there. And she was the person that took a shitty job at a comedy club probably to give me access. She never said that, but I always thought she must have taken that to give me access. And then to see her there, and then I was like, it was nice that I had her there because it wasn't always an easy relationship. So I, I felt good that, oh, I made sure my mom was there. Yeah. Uh... It's a tough one because you always wonder, how did I treat her? How did she treat me? Especially when relationships are complicated. So it, it just made me so happy because she looked so happy in the footage. It's hard because uh, when one's parents get a divorce, your field of vision already is pretty you know, myopic because you're a kid. And so in that small window that you have, if your parents split up, all of a sudden, all you see outside that window is all the shit and all the debris that comes from the fallout of two people breaking apart. And in your case, you had two very supportive parents, but a mother who took that job in Southampton and as someone who also has a very supportive mother. I often think about it being too late to say thank you, like enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I try to say it to people. My mom was at some event that I was speaking at when she was really ill, and I made a point of saying everything I would want to say to her in front of a lot of people about what she meant to me, what she did for me. And it's funny because a few weeks ago, Bud Friedman came to Largo to see me and Adam Sandler, and we were on stage together, and after Adam sat, we would just chat on stage. And we knew Bud Friedman was there, and we made a point of just saying how much we loved him and how everything that happened to us happened because of his belief in us and him giving us opportunities. And then he just died. And I, I just felt, well, I got, I got a chance to tell him very explicitly. Mm -hmm. And I always 
I'm aware of looking for those opportunities. It's so great that anyone who watches the finale of the Larry Sanders show could potentially pick up on that little tidbit of of your mother in there. But that's going to live on long after we're past. I mean, I did a similar thing when we did This is 40. My grandmother was in it, and she says something that she would always say to us, which is like, you know, life goes fast. Don't blink. You blink, and you're 90. <laughs> Don't blink. And, you know, we had her you know, with that warning. Mm. And that was like an important thing to have her in the movie. You know, she exists forever now. She's gone. I think that's part of what I, I, I like to do with all the projects is do something that Gary showed me, which is this blurring of the line of reality and fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, scenes are fake, but they come from some truth. And sometimes people are playing themselves or they're playing characters saying things that they've said in, in real life. And I think that a lot of times I see projects like Lena Dunham's Tiny Furniture. And I think, yes, that's the kind of thing I love. I love that her mom is played by her mom and it's her family and it's her apartment. And I know it's fiction, but I also know it comes from a deeply truthful place. And that's what Gary always was trying to accomplish. You know, how how deep can you go? How How truthful can you get? Can we go to that period after you leave the Sanders show where that line seems to be blurred a whole lot? In the mid-2000s, you make 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. And it's around this time that you, Leslie, and this and this growing family kind of feel like the normal people with daily struggles that, you know, attracted you to stories that Gary wrote or James L. Brooks wrote. What was that period like in the mid-2000s as you started making films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and then Knocked Up? Well, I, you know, was working on Freaks and Geeks, which is very much about Paul and his childhood, but we all were making contributions of things that had happened to us and relationships we had had. And I started writing about divorce through Sam Levine's character. Sam Levine becomes obsessed with ventriloquism, which was a way of (laughs) talking about my obsession with comedy. And also through the Martin Starr character, Bill Haverchuk, you know, him dealing with his parents, his mom dating and how awkward that was. So I tried to insert a lot of that into the show, and there were certain sequences like the one where Bill is watching television and watching Gary Shandling to the Who's song, I'm One, which were very personal, and I noticed that they came out well, and I was able to communicate something in a way I never had been able to before. So when the show ended and I was trying to figure out how to write, I dug deeper. And then when we did Knocked Up, it was a way of talking about, you know, what it's like to be in over your head. And Seth, when he met his wife, Lauren, on their first date, they got into a car accident. And Seth said the the date didn't go well. But because they'd been in a car accident together, they felt that they should at least have another date. <laughs> so I had been talking to Seth, and he was talking about some ideas he wanted to do, which were very imaginative. And I said... Said, I don't think you need to do any of that. You're so funny. You could have something very normal happen in life. And I think it would be fascinating because it happened to you. Like you could get someone pregnant. And that would be enough for me to watch a whole movie. And then I realized, oh, we should do that. And so I went off to write that. And, you know, a lot of things that had happened fit into it. Like 
our doctor not showing up to the birth <laughs> and, and, and things that I had made notes about that I thought were so crazy that they were destined to be a sequence in a movie. That period is so interesting to me because what comes after in 2009 is a movie called Funny People. It seemed like that film allowed you and Adam Sandler to make a picture about the dream you shared in 1991 in that North Hollywood apartment. When you look back at that movie now, what do you think it says about the dream you two had? And what do you think it says about the journeys you two went on to attain it? I think, you know, a lot of these movies happen in a weird fever dream. You know, my mom was sick and I was thinking a lot about her ride. There were moments where she thought she would get better. There were moments when she didn't think she would get better. She'd be on all these different experimental medicines for ovarian cancer. And I noticed that when she thought she was going to die, she seemed happier. She seemed released from a lot of her worldly concerns and her neuroses. And then she would find out, oh, the new medicine's working. And then she would get caught up again and get very neurotic. And at the same time, I, I was also thinking, is there a way to talk about mentorship? There were so many people that helped me out. One day I realized, oh, that could be the same movie. It is about our love of comedy and our excitement when anyone let us in the door and when we were able to meet our heroes. And then some moments when we realized our heroes were very seriously flawed and that part of our journey would be to avoid some of the traps they fell into or some of the ways they approach their lives. We, we don't want to become egomaniacs. We don't want to wind up alone in a house, not really knowing how to have deep, real relationships. And I think that's especially an example of a, a, a movie that you're, you're not even sure what you were writing about till years later. Mm. So anytime I see any of it, I think, oh, I didn't even know what it was. Because at the time I thought, well, in some ways, Adam's playing my mom. And then other times I watch and think, well, this is like a message to me and Adam not to turn into George Simmons and to value love and friendship and family before show business and ego, which is also a result of Gary, which is Gary's work was about like, don't become Larry. You know, Larry wasn't like a bad guy. This is supposed to be someone that had gone to a slightly darker place mm. and needed to wake up. The relationship between the Seth Rogen character and the Adam Sandler character, the younger comic and the older celebrated seasoned comic, it was hard for me to not think of you and Gary in that dynamic. Well, the big difference was that at the end of that movie, the way George Simmons shows Seth's character that he cares about him is he writes jokes for him. So he's not just a taker. So the whole movie's a taker. And at the end, he gives. And the truth is that Gary always gave. He wasn't like George Simmons in that way. Certainly there were some elements of like a guy alone, but Gary wasn't aggressive like that. He wasn't, you know, edgy. Hell, Gary gave you the ending in 40-Year-Old Virgin. Yes, Gary was the one who said, the movie needs to be about love and you need to figure out how to show that the sex is better when you're in love, that his sex is better than his friend's sex. And he would just push me so hard that you got to figure it out. And then Steve Carell one day said, well, maybe we just do a dance. And it only happened because Gary wouldn't stop pushing me. So he was always showing up at every table read, at every cut. I mean, when Gary died, I went through all my emails and read them. And every email where I asked Gary to do something or show up or help me, he said yes. 
in 10 years of emails, I was just bawling at the monitor reading these emails because it was literally every single time. The idea of mentorship, which is so central to funny people, it seems like after that film, that becomes a huge part of your life to kind of help shepherd these young comics and help them tell the stories they're meant to tell. After a movie like that, did you feel like you wanted to become the guy Gary was to you in those emails? I don't think I thought about it consciously. You know, I would hire people to write for shows that I was working on or running. So that was part of what I did. And at some point after Freaks and Geeks, I thought everyone here is so talented and we haven't scratched the surface. So I would push everyone like, why don't you learn to write? Like, you got anything? You have any ideas? And a bunch of people did. So I don't think I consciously was thinking, oh, I'm going to be like Gary. But I think that was in me. Like Gary had wired it in me. So it didn't have to be conscious. It was just, oh, Seth and Evan wrote super bad. Let me see if I can help them with it. And Jason Siegel wrote Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Maybe we can see if we can get that made. And maybe we can get Nick Stoller, who's a writer and undeclared, to direct it and make his debut. And then that just kept happening because those people were so strong and they had a lot to say. And what I realized was there's a moment in your youth where you have your big story. And a lot of people early in their lives, they make their boogie nights, <laughs> you know, their passion project. So it's not their 10th movie, like on number one or number two, the level of passion is through the roof. And oftentimes there's a lot of ideas that can be expressed in the best way, the first time, King of Staten Island, Pete Davidson has a lot to say, a lot to show people. And you only get to make one of those. I mean, hopefully you make a lot of great movies and personal movies in your life. But that's a moment I like being a part of, is what's the most important story you ever could tell? I'm thinking for you, we've been referencing Freaks and Geeks throughout this conversation. I feel like we have to watch that scene with Martin Starr in front of the TV that is very much an emblem of you coming of age in Long Island. Can we do that for a second? Sure. Every year is the same and I feel it again I'm a loser No chance to win But I'm one It gets me every, every single time. I cry every single time. I could cry a hundred times in a row watching that. Everybody has the same reaction to it because it's just about the loneliness of being a kid and trying to find ways to be happy and the ways you self-soothe through food and television and comedy. And it's a lot of people's childhoods is going home alone, figuring out what to do to have an okay day and to see Gary always hits me because he was the person I was watching as a kid. And so the fact that I got to know him and he was a mentor and helped me so much, it's almost too much. It's funny because I was talking to someone 
just the other day about Gary, and we were talking about just someone who comes into your life and just says, hey, I'm going to help you learn how to write jokes. I'm going to help you learn how to direct. I'm going to help you with your movies. I'm going to teach you about Buddhism. Like, it's a lot of beautiful gestures, an enormous amount of generosity from a very neurotic, fascinating, <laughs> hilarious person who was also struggling in a lot of ways. You know, he really took great care of me. It's just such a blessing that I stumbled upon him. I guess my last question for you, in that scene, you have Bill, age 14, 15, laughing, eating, watching Gary Shandling on the Dinosaur show. And of course, we can't separate the character Martin Starr is playing and, and, and who you were as a teenager. And as I'm thinking of you as a teenager, I want to go back to the interview you did with Gary in 1984. Toward the end of that talk, you asked him about what he'll be doing five years from now. And here's what he said. I hope the comedy will be even more honest than it is now, more personal, because it takes time for people to get to know you. I mean, Richard Pryor is a perfect example. If you look at what he was doing 10 or 15 years ago, it's different than what he does now because we know him. He can just get up and start talking about his life. And that's the funniest stuff. And so as we leave, for you at 54, do you still have that same desire to get up there on stage or get behind the keyboard or behind the camera? Do you still have that same desire to talk about your life in ways that are honest and personal? The, as Gary would say, that's the right question. <laughs> and I'm definitely in open space right now trying to figure out what to write about and what to do. And I have a couple of, of ideas, but every time you head into a project, you take a deep breath because you're just jumping off a cliff. And that's where I am now. I have to figure out, okay, which one do I want to jump off a cliff with? And what else is there to say? that I haven't said before? Do I have a new insight? Do I have a new area that needs exploring? And I'm sure I do, but it's challenging because when you've made a lot of things, you've covered a lot of ground and you do have to be willing to take massive risks and be willing to fail. That's all it's about is, can I find it in myself to say, this is worth risking massive failure to try to tell this story as well as I can. And I, I usually get there at, at some point, like, all right, let's 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 go do this and see what happens. I always think it's like jumping in a frying pan. And then for like a year, you've literally just been grilling in a frying pan. And then suddenly it's over. And you're like, that was so crazy that we did that. Like, we literally made this crazy movie and then you just like, oh, and then you kind of rest for a year or two. And then you're like, should I jump back in that frying pan? Oh, it's going to hurt, but it would probably be worth it. Let's do it. <laughs> so that's where I'm at now. So you're ready to jump? Almost ready to jump. I got to figure out what's in the frying pan I'm jumping in with. <laughs> well, whatever is in there, so long as it has all the ingredients of a story that we've been talking about, the things Shandling showed you, the things 
I think you've demonstrated in, in so many of the movies we've talked about, then uh, I'm excited to see it. That's what I'll be thinking about at the keyboard. <laughs> you waiting. <laughs> Me, Sam Fragoso waiting? Just you. I'm going to only think of you. I'm going to put a picture on the keyboard and say, one person is very open to this. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you need. Whatever you need from me, like Gary, I will be there. Thank you. John Apatow, appreciate the time. That was fun. our show special thanks this week to brie kelly and kate rosenbaum at idpr cassidy ala and of course judd apatow for links to his new docuseries george carlin's american dream his latest films including the bubble and bros and his book sicker in the head you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com if you enjoyed today's conversation I'd recommend our episodes with Lena Dunham, Billy Eichner, Meg Stalter, Nick Kroll, Quinta Brunson, Bill Hader, Abby Jacobson, Nick Offerman, and George Saunders. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. Visit TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support us in other ways, reviewing and rating this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs are by Maria Alvarez. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Jonathan Majors. Until then. Stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards 
from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 